Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome back for Episode 39 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I am your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, it's been nigh on a month since our last podcast, and for that, I apologize. I'm afraid I was beset by the triple threat dilemma of a death in my family, finding out that I'm borderline hypertensive, and a computer virus that pretty much took out the Mr. Herman Studios for a couple of weeks there. Now, the death of my aunt and the hypertension thing were pretty bad, but the computer virus actually resulted in the entire back catalog of original podcast files getting wiped, not to mention all the music we use on the show and some of the outtakes I had been saving. Fortunately, just before the summer conference this year, I made some CDs of most of the episodes and have since discovered backups of almost everything else as well, so all is not lost on that front. Now I just have to finish mourning my aunt's passing and eat a low-fat, high-fiber diet, and we'll all be set. So, in honor of the fact that we've been away for three weeks, today's podcast is an extra long one. It's the second of three recorded live readings of West Virginia writers' appearances during June's Festival event in Charleston. This one is taken from our appearance at Taylor Books on June 23rd and features readings by some of our members whose work was collected in West Virginia Writers' latest anthology of winners of our annual writing contest, Seeking the Swan. Included are Jeff Fuller, Wilma Akery, Edwina Pendarvis, Laura Tracy Bentley, and Llewellyn McKiernan. The reading took place in the coffee shop section of Taylor Books in downtown Charleston, so you can occasionally hear some road noise outside and cappuccinos being blended in the background. Otherwise, though, the sound quality is excellent, thanks in large part to writer Colleen Anderson, who attended the event and who very graciously brought a portable PA system for us to use. The event was hosted by West Virginia Writers' newly elected president, Kat Pleska, who I now turn things over to. Uh, welcome this evening to a uh, reading uh, from Seeking the Swan, an anthology, uh, which is chock full of previous uh, award-winning writers. Uh, who enter our uh, annual contest, West Virginia Writers Contest, each year. And every five years or so, we collect those winning entries uh, into an anthology. And Seeking the Swan is the latest one. Uh, there's the previous ones there, Catching the Crow, and now the Magpie, uh, West Virginia Writers Best Of, and Mountain Voices, I believe, comes from the Round Table, right? Yeah, it comes from the Round Table, which is an adjunct. Uh, uh, affiliated with the uh, West Virginia Writers. So tonight we have five uh, very talented and wonderful readers, and um, I'm going to introduce each one of them, and we're going to get right to it, and so you can hear them read um, their work. First up is Jeff Fuller. Uh, encouraged early in his career by doing well in West Virginia Writers' contests, Jeff Fuller went on the on on to publish fiction and nonfiction in a variety of newspapers, magazines, literary journals, and books. This spring, Writer's Workshop of Horror, a book to which he contributed a chapter on the use of setting in horror fiction, won a Bram Stoker Award, beating an entry by Stephen King. Everyone welcome. 
Jeff Fuller. Um, I'm going to uh, read uh, a couple of things. One of them is a short, short uh, fiction piece called Splinters. Uh, short, short, for those of you who are familiar with them, they're, they're very brief fiction. Uh, usually they can also be flash memoir. Um, that encapsulates a moment in time and tells a story by the things that it implies as well as what it actually says. So this is called Splinters. From where she stood next to the barn, she could see the acres of alfalfa in the valley. She knew how the grasses quivered when the wind moved across them, the shifting purples and browns of the ripened grains, the raspy soft sounds the stalks made as they gentled against one another. But these were memory. There was no wind blowing today. She told herself maybe it was better this way, that much less to miss as she had to leave. Out of breath after her walk from the house, she leaned one-handed against the barn wall. It seemed so long since the quarter-mile walk had been effortless. Her knees hurt. The rough wood under her palm made her remember that she would have to take her hand away with an upward motion or risk splinters. The barn had been on the farm for as long as she had and had been badly beaten by the seasons, especially the winters, when it was barely used and never cared for. She breathed slowly and deeply, watching the breath sift out. Where the forest started, the grasses stopped, unable to grow in the shadow of the trees. She could still see well enough to make out the dark tree line. This time of year, the trees cast scant shadows, but this time of year, nothing ever had a chance to grow. Winter was even worse. At least that's what she used to think, how she used to think about it. She never cared much for winter. In fact, liked it less as time passed, although she hadn't dreaded it in the last few years. Not like she used to. Each year, the barren season seemed shorter. Probably that, that was because her husband had also been getting older, less restless, less urgent. Age had softened some of his edges. Still, winter had meant long days and longer nights. If they had had children, everything might have been different. No, it surely would have been different if they would had children. She didn't blame him, but he never got over it. Winter was downtime on the farm, no work except the feedings, a few repairs when the weather permitted, and towards February, usually some wood chopping. He'd put on his coat and say, chopping wood is good for two warmings, once when you chop it, once when you burn it. He always thought that was very funny. She'd heard it several times a season for 40 years, over and over. She just sighed. At least he could work out on the wood for a change. Never allowed to help with any of the chores, she mostly spent winter indoors, doing crosswords or cooking the canned vegetables and venison that was their standard winter fare. She wondered if anyone would help her out by giving her some venison next year, but then remembered that she never cared for much for venison. Not really, not any more than winter. If she was allowed to stay, which she doubted, the real difficulties would be with the field below. Maybe she should have waited until after the harvest. She could sell all the livestock, except maybe a, maybe a milk cow, possibly give them to Elton for coal and a few eggs every week. But that field, she couldn't just let it lie fallow. That would be a waste. Maybe she could hire the Lowry boys or the coal banks to put up the hay. They would probably be willing to come around now. She could tell them to sell the hay and keep 50%. She leaned against the barn, thinking nothing after that. Nothing for a very long time. Her face was numb and her eyes all watered over by the time she decided she'd better call the sheriff, get it over with. She forgot to lift her hand as she took it away from the rough barn wood, winced as she felt a splinter break off in her palm. She'd take care of that as soon as she got back to the house, even before she called the sheriff. Splinters were always best when removed. Okay, and then this one is uh, a little bit longer. It's a non-fiction piece. I've been working with a guy investigating a crime up in Morgantown 
It happened a long time ago. And as part of that, um, I've written a true crime book and we're going to be shopping around soon. I'm not going to go into the background of the crime. If you, if you don't know it, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters. Uh, this should tell you what you need to know. The 60s turned into 1970. Oh, the crime was in 1970, in, the, in the January of 1970. The 60s turned into the 1970s with bursts of violence and mayhem across the nation. In December of 1969, explosions destroyed offices in California, Maryland, Michigan, New York, and Washington. The bombings were blamed on the Weather Underground, a radical splinter group for, of the Students for Democratic Society. A four-hour shootout shredded the Black Panther headquarters in Los Angeles. By the end of December, memories of muddy free love at Woodstock had been replaced by the blood and murder of December 6th appearance of the Rolling Stones at Altamont Speedway in California. Social protest was growing apocalyptic around the country, and students on the campus of West Virginia University, 14,000 strong, were becoming restless. The first anti-Vietnam protest in Morgantown came in May of 1970 in response to the April student deaths in nearby Kent State. Protests didn't come naturally to WVU students, a conservative and largely peaceful group. When tear gas was finally fired into the crowd, the inexperience of the state police with this kind of gathering resulted in the gassing of an entire out gallery of onlookers who greatly outnumbered the protesters and who were mostly composed of fraternity brothers and other hecklers bent on humiliating the hippies who dared protest the Vietnam War. The Horribles were on a national parade at the end of 1969, the beginning of 1970. Charles Manson and his family were, were arrested in December 1969 for the Tate LaBianca murders. The Zodiac Killer, once presumed dead after escaping capture for seven murders, had resurfaced. Jeffrey McDonald, decorated Vietnam War veteran, was accused of the cult slaying of his wife and two daughters, despite his description of three assailants, two men and a woman and a woman in a floppy hat who chanted, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. The national darkness was so pervasive it had to touch Morgantown. In late December 1969, Jacques Yablonski, who was running for president of the United Mine Workers on promises to clean up the corrupt union, was found murdered along with his wife and children a few miles northeast of Morgantown. Barely two days later, on January 2nd, Morgantown's prosecuting attorney, Joe Larita, a tireless crusader against corruption and illegal gambling interests, went out to start his car. The explosion of a bomb underneath the chassis hospitalized him. People in the Monongahela River Valley talked about both crimes for months. Just over two weeks after that, snow fell over Morgantown on a Sunday night. It was January 18th, the night before the winter semester was to begin, and WVU freshmen Merritt Malarick and Karen Farrell decided to hitchhike back to their dorm after a movie. They never made it. Their headless bodies were found on April 16th, three months later, in a wooded area eight miles south of Morgantown. April 8, 1970 began bright and sunny, a good day for a drive. The rainy and chill Morgantown spring had turned towards summer, although it was still very cold at night. That sunny Wednesday, Sergeant Lawrence L. Harold and Troopers Preston B. Gooden and Jerry A. Dequazy, all three of West Virginia State Police, decided to check the route from Morgantown south to Grafton on 119. The trip wasn't recreational. The state troopers wanted to gauge the accuracy of the mileage readings given in an anonymous handwritten letter received two days earlier. The letter was postmarked Cumberland, Maryland, about 75 miles east of Morgantown, and the letter writer claimed to know where the bodies were. Police believed that only the killer could know that. On their drive, the officers were looking for signs that might lead to the discovery, or more likely recovery, of two West Virginia University co-eds, Mayor Malrick and Karen Farrell, who had been missing since January 18th. 
The letter had said the girls' bodies would be found 25 plus one miles south of Morgantown. Another 25 miles on after 25 miles on 119, the troopers found themselves in downtown Grafton, a fading river and railroad town that had once been a shipping hub for North Central West Virginia. The troopers were at a railroad, I believe depot is the next word, railroad tracks near the Mon Monongahela River. They looked around at the cars and cement and the once grand brick buildings of the heart of Grafton. The note had said the girls would be found in a wooded area. They decided to keep driving. One mile further at the southern edges of Grafton, 25 plus one miles from Morgantown, they came to a wooded area to the right of Route 119. They stopped the car and got out. The search turned up nothing of interest. The main ground search, intermittent for the previous couple of weeks, began in earnest on the morning of Thursday, April 16th. The bulk of searchers, more than 200 officers and men of the National Guard, were on loan from the state to the state police. The 201st Field Artillery Unit, Battery B, was based in Morgantown. About half the men from Morgantown and about half from nearby Fairmont. Under the command of Captain John L. Carline, the search began at the intersection of Grafton and Halleck Roads. About 11.15, Steve Silvinsky and another guardsman were walking with Trooper R.L. Cunningham on Route 76-2, known locally as Owl Creek Road. They stopped right where a narrow dirt road branched north. Rutted and bumpy, if the single lane road had been a city or town, it would have been called an alley. Cutting into the woods, the road appeared to be part of the usual network of maintenance roads, the capillaries that nursed the rural logging and mining acreage of West Virginia. The road rose slightly uphill and branched perpendicularly from Owl Creek Road. Why don't you two go on up that road, Slavinsky said to Trooper Cunningham and the other guardsmen. I'll check out the little valley. To the right side of the tiny dirt road, paralleling it, ran a small creek, presumably Owl Creek. The narrow valley stretched about 75 feet to the right of the creek. The truth was, he didn't feel like walking up the dirt road right then. We'll meet down the hollow there, Slavinsky said as he began to walk slowly over the uneven ground, looking for anything that might be of interest. They'd been walking a skirmish line, a wavering single-file row of searchers, off and on for almost two weeks. The large team of state police and National Guardsmen was supplemented by a number of volunteers. In fact, there had been a volunteer, Fred Stewart, who had found Merritt's glasses a few days before. A tree stood near the center of the hollow, about 30 feet from the creek. In the middle of the trunk, three or four feet off the ground, a hole was clearly visible. As he drew closer, Slavinsky realized that the hole would be a good place to stash something. He bent and swept up a solid stick without stopping. Yes, a good place to hide a murder weapon. He stopped beside the tree. Recalling his training, he used the stick to explore the unseen insides of the dark hole in the tree. Nothing. Shifting his gaze, he looked to the right, about ten feet past the tree. A mound of dirt and rocks and leaves and... He shook his head to clear his thoughts, looked back. Sticking out from the rocks and leaves was a tangle of dark bone, tattered flesh. That's the picture. <laughs> a little happy, a couple happy pieces for you. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. That was Jeff Fuller, everybody. And um, West Virginia Writers Incorporated is a nonprofit group uh, that's been around for about 33 years. We've been running the contest about any contest about 31, 32, something like that. During the uh, the organization's um, history, let me turn it up. Okay, we'll get this right one these During the organization's history, we've had a number of uh, uh, people who have served as president in other offices. 
Uh, and our next reader, uh, Wilma Acri, has been uh, president formally, and she's still involved with the board, and she's our coordinator for the book festival uh, between us and the, uh, our group and the book festival. So Wilma Acri's poems appear uh, in literary journals, um, two chapbooks, and three anthologies, including Seeking the Swan, which all this work is in uh, Seeking the Swan. We have those for sale this evening. Uh, two terriers allow her to live in their house in Vienna, West Virginia. Ladies and gentlemen, Wilma Acri. And sometimes I think they're terrors instead of terriers. <laughs> Unmarked Civil War battlefield. Blue-green cedars stretch long branches of prickly needles. Their dense roots twist through red clay soil. A, a slight rut nearby, the only sign that this was once a battlefield, all that's left of trenches dug with spades. You'll find no fragment of helmet here, no railroad spikes or memorials. Perhaps you'll find two gray stones six feet apart to mark the grave of an anonymous soldier. It's only other visitors two Holstein cows or the farmer who owns this land. <coughs> and that is unmarked, unmarked Civil War battlefield. Like a geode. Outside, the geode is rough rock, gray mottled with white, Embedded gravels crowd tiny pits and water-softened stone. Inside, rough edges feather to a circle of indigo, a ring of lighter blue, a center of white crystals with a quarter-sized core. Outside, I struggle with arthritic knees, migraines, and fat. My body screams, old, old, old. Words get lost as they journey from mind to mouth. Inside, I dance in silver starlight, twirl across green meadows, and sing in tune. Words spill from mind to mouth as smoothly as water over stones. And one final one, which was written a few years ago in um, a workshop at Cedar Lakes. Um, and um, it won an honorable mention this year in poetry. If you see buzzards, if you seek buzzards, it must be spring. High above the hills they soar on thermals, their wings of V. You see dark silhouettes with wingtip feathers spread like fingers, an illusion of beauty. Close to a buzzard, you see 
ugliness. Wrinkled red head, too small for his body. Hooked yellow bill, short red legs. Chicken-like feet, too weak to kill. If you say buzzard, human noses sniff in disgust. If you see buzzards, Trees bud into myriad greens, interspersed with yellows and reds. Here and there, the pink of redbud, the white of dogwood. If you see buzzards, you know that Persephone has emerged from darkness. If you see buzzards, you see God's recyclers, a body devoid of breath, feeding one that breathes, a body that breathes, cleaning the land. Thank you, Wilma. Thank you. Now well, we have a couple of dead co-eds and a buzzer. Okay. She <laughs> uh, reads wonderfully. Both of them do. Um, the, um, we have three poets here this evening, all from the Huntington area, right, ladies, all from the Huntington area, drove down here this evening uh, to read. And the first one up that I'm going to call up uh, is Eddie Pendarvis. Uh, Eddie Pendarvis's most recent publications are Like the Mountains of China, a poetry collection, Raft, Tide, and Railroad, a family memoir, and a young adult biography of Pearl Buck published in a dual language edition uh, by Shanghai Foreign Language Education Press. Her books are available through Blair Mountain Press at http www.blairmtp.com and I have some handouts over here too if you'd like to have their, their web address uh, so you can go check out more of their work. So please welcome Eddie Pendarvis. kind of a commercial bio. <laughs> My apologies for that. I just was proud of the Pearl Buck book, especially that I co-authored with somebody in I, I love China. I got to go there several years ago and didn't get over it. But um, it's sold in China but not here. <laughs> it just, it's just sort of quaint looking so I wanted to I have a few copies I put on Blair Mountain Press's website, but I wanted to tell you all that I have um, some postcards that Now and Then Magazine asked me to just hand out to people. The, if you haven't sent things to Now and Then Appalachian Magazine or read them, I think they're really a good magazine and a good outlet for Appalachian literature. And uh, then also, the Jesse Stewart Foundation. I have their catalog, which has an article by Laura Bentley in it too, and, and they have some articles in their book list. So those are just a couple of things I brought with me. Um, <laughs> I'm scared I'm going to trip over this board. <laughs> I was glad to have uh, a couple of poems in Seeking the Swan that I I didn't remember being these contests. <laughs> really nice. The first one is this on? Make sure it's turned. I think it's 
push it up. Does that sound right? Is it put it up here closer? Okay. Tell me, is it too loud? Okay. This is speaking of China. Um, the poem that inspired my poem, this poem, was there was one written by a Tang Dynasty poet named Du Fu, and he wrote a letter to his children. He was working for the government somewhere in another part of China, and his letter was so beautiful. He w was missing his children, and I haven't been happy since my children left home. 30 years ago. <laughs> so that poem resonated with me a lot. This is called uh, To My Grown Son and Daughter Living in the North. Even in the south, the leaves have turned yellow. Green snakes and copperheads coil underground. Tonight I see you again as children, climbing the rain tree, clinging like bear cubs to its branches. I dream the north wind brings you home. You arrive all night like rain slanting through darkness. Centuries ago and far away on Turtle Mountain, two children dreamed into being, played in the shade of a peach tree, planted for the way it would measure the seasons, while their father wrote to them from Nanking. In southern China, leaves are still green. Silkworms and Wu have now had three sleeps. I have another poem in here. This is also, uh, this is about my daughter. It's called Equinox. And I think a lot of times humans, because they're aware of how transient happiness is, if we're happy, we feel like it's a balance that it's going to turn bad before too long. <laughs> and equinox, the equinoctical time of year in the autumn and the spring seemed like a, a tipping point or a balance point. So this was a happy day, equinox. The sky looked clear and deep when I visited the farm last Sunday. Perfect September weather. Even the dogs were the perfect dog. Luke caught his treat in midair, his big jaws snapping neatly just below my fingertips. Duke brought me a stick. In the kitchen, my girl sat in the only chair her husband ate standing, while I parted her hair into tiny plots, pulled each auburn strand taut, rolled it under and under, then clipped it snugly to her head. We drank coffee till noon. Long hair, shaken loose and shining, she cleaned stalls after lunch and I picked beans. White pods and green hung in clusters like long-fingered hands. The sound of a hammer held us together as Tony built a bed for the tulip bulbs to winter in come the cold weather. High in the wall of the tool shed nearby, a fat copperhead coiled between two planks, slept like an idea in the shade of the eaves. Driving back to town past wooded hillsides striped with shadow, I remembered a watercolor I've been meaning to frame, a slender magenta triangle flying into a bright red sun. I have uh, one more poem if you can, can bear one more. This is about Floyd Collins, who is a, was really interesting to me. He was a guy in 
uh, sort of middle Kentucky in the 1920s who tried to find caves. You know, at that time they were opening Mammoth Cave. They were using caves. They were just coming open for tourists. And he wanted to find a cave, so he was kind of a spelunker. And he crawled into a cave one time and got stuck. And there was a big media to-do about it. He was trapped there, I think, for a couple of, almost two weeks. Charles Lindbergh even flew in. It was all in the national press. But he, he didn't survive. Uh, they When they got him out, he was already dead. And I don't know his story. There's something pitiful about it. So this is Floyd Collins. He fit the part of Loki trickster living in a twilight world of gravel, mud, and sweating rock. Long-nosed and skinny, at home underground. No one could keep up with him, scaling walls, straddling canyons, dropping into deep pits. He'd been trapped before and gotten out. Trickster, up and down, above ground and under, in and out of the border world. This time, he couldn't move. He was wedged into the tunnel arms pinned to his sides, one foot caught under a fallen rock, a heavy limestone slab inches above his face. His wool coat hung outside the hole he'd crawled into. Shivering with cold, Floyd grew impatient with waiting. When rescuers came, he asked for his pal, Johnny Gerald, who strung a light bulb around his neck. He asked for his brother, Homer, who stayed as long as he could, holding a sandwich for Floyd to eat, tipping a cup to his lips, touching his shoulder all night. Neither best friend nor brother could free him. When the tunnel collapsed, they couldn't even see him. So he tried one last trick to keep them digging. I'm free, boys, come on down, he cried. Homer lowered a quart of milk on a rope and waited, calling to his brother. Are you free, Floyd? No. Thank you, Eddie. That's all. Thanks, Eddie. Appreciate it. Um, our next, uh, Laura, how do you pronounce your middle name? Tracy? Tracy. Tracy. Yeah, okay. All right, thank you. I've wondered for years. <laughs> it's spelled a little differently, so I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Our next reader is Laura Tracy Bentley, and her first collection of poetry, Lake Effect, was published by Bottom Dog Press in 2006. She is the book editor for West Virginia Living Magazine and writer-in-residence for the Marshall University Writing Project. Please welcome Laura Bentley. I always wanted to have couple poems in the winning collection, so it's um, wonderful to be able to read, read them. They're also uh, collected in, in Lake Effect, which is my um, collection. This first one is called Passage, and it's just about the alley uh, in back of my house where I've spent a lot of time walking uh, to school and back, basically, and, and I've come, became very familiar with the alleyways. Passage. Mornings, she ate staring out the back window into the night, 
When it was time, she got into a black pickup and drove the alleys, a slow tunneling between garage and gate. Here lay the cast-offs, sometimes a rusted chaise lounge, strips of frayed webbing limp against a concrete drive, dying potted plants, old window frames with broken panes. She learned to be patient, coasting past abused trash cans and garbage pail lids, propped like lost hubcaps against garage doors. She learned the shape of darkness, what's valuable, what's not. Beneath clots of mistletoe high in winter trees, green-eyed cats waited for her on rocky walls. She memorized the cough of each barking dog. Headlights switched off, soundless and unseen, save the suspended heat of red-eyed brake lights. She stole through dark alleyways like a fine run that slips silently down the back of the sheerest silk stocking. This next poem is about the poet Larry Levis, and he's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, I heard him read and, and uh, went to a conference one year, uh, a number of years ago, and this poem came later after correspondence with people that, that knew him better than, much better than I did. It's called Late Fire, and that starts with a uh, quote by Larry Levis. I think it is all light at the end. I think it is air. Larry Levis, The Quilt. The poet told us Yeats came to him in a dream and said, passion is everything. He repeated the words again as if somehow we hadn't heard. Then he began to read, the summer sun streaming through the windows, the microphone flashing like starlight. The next day he went swimming in a lake. I saw his body crack the surface of the water as he swam under that July sun. His wake lapped against the shore, covering my bare feet like laughter. This summer he is dead. Just before he died, he'd been working on a single line over and over, one late fire burning beside a field. Um, I wanted to read a, a couple more poems. This one is from 10 by 3 plus, which is a, a relatively new uh, journal out of Morgantown. And I'm sure that she would love to have some submissions from you. Uh, Sue Ann Samar is the editor. And she published a poem that I wrote called Closet Appalachians. <clears throat> and um, this came from uh, conversations I had with my youngest brother about people that hide the fact, or try to hide the fact, that they're from Appalachia. So you'll, you'll see uh, as this moves on. I have a quote that, from Billy Ed Wheeler at the beginning of this one. Closet Appalachians. Oh, can't you hear that pretty little bird singing with all his heart and soul? He's got a blood-red spot on his wing, but all the rest of him's black as coal. Billy Ed Wheeler. 
He spends a lifetime losing his accent, living abroad, wearing Versace and alligator shoes, the consummate cosmopolitan, organic food and bottled water, ballet russe and the Met, sushi bars and Chardonnay. She never tells where she's really from until a corporate boss from West Virginia calls her bluff, turns up her nose at bluegrass and Billy Ed, but alone in her Lamborghini, she tunes in mountain stage and crack, cranks up the volume when Kathy Matea sings Red Wing Blackbird. Their high-rise ways are grounded in shadowed valleys and windy ridges, soaring eagles above Cheat Mountain, quivering trout below icy shallows, and mornings so country quiet, they've cut a seam deep inside them. His roots, nor hers, may never be revealed unless late at night after downing one last glass of champagne, they confess to a sleepy bartender that she may look like a city girl, that he may look like a city boy, but all the rest is black as coal. This poem um, is published in ABZ, just came out, and Llewellyn and her husband, John McKernan, are the editors. Another wonderful place to send your work. And uh, this poem uh, is about my husband. <laughs> and um, you'll understand. He, uh, he, ha he had a, this leftover glass uh, door, uh, like a double glass door, in sliding door. And he kept saying, I want to put it down there on that tree down there. And we have some property uh, in Garrett County. And so he kept talking about talking about it. We knew it was going to get in a poem because he wouldn't shut up about it. <laughs> he was going to hinge it on a tree right down, you know, right down below. So anyway, he loves this poem because I wrote it about him. So we'll see. It's called Glass Doorway. If you stumble upon a glass door hinged to a sturdy locust tree in forests thick with sumac and pine, know that my husband put it there. An interactive sculpture that moves not like a mobile, but a summer door, opening and shutting when the wind catches its transparency. On rainy days when the glass fogs, you might draw watery glyphs of fawn and cub with a wet finger until the sun comes out. In winter, when snow falls on both sides, the door might frost over, framing an opaque universe you're tempted to knock on. Cautious birds set sail away from its silvered sky and shuttered moon, wondering if it's really better on the other side. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Okay, last but not least, certainly not least, is, yeah, <laughs> shortest, uh, is uh, Llewellyn uh, McKernan. She's a poet, a children's book writer and teacher who has lived and worked in West Virginia so long that she considers it her home. And you are from where originally then? Southern Arkansas. Southern Arkansas. Llewellyn, that's a Welsh name, isn't it? Yes, but I'm not 
Oh, you're not? Well, but your parents must have liked Welsh people. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is lovely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, there could be a Welshman somewhere in the background. <laughs> She, um, she has had three poetry books for adults published and four for children. Please welcome Luella McKernan. Can you hear me? The first poem uh, I'm reading is from Seeking the Swan, and the title is part of the first line of the poem, so I'll read them together. Soft as a lullaby is sung, I stumble past the hobnail moon and the bullfrog mocking the flat lawn with its gully-deep aria, past the tree that splits the coloratura of the sky into branches, and I step into my father's house, where every room I enter gets smaller and smaller. Each shrinking hearth fire, quickened by childhood memories that smolder like ash in my heart, making its blue vein tender, burst into life, red flames shrugging off their old snake skins to burn again and again, each with its own peculiar bite. So I sing the blues, every hunkered cry different as notes on a scale, yet the same breath moves through them all, lonely and taut as the muscle in Janis Joplin's throat as she ends her duet with death on the highest note of all, held for so long the lungs almost burst and my dead father appears. His fingers pale splinters, his body a giant repost of light, his voice moving me like the foundations of a house when it shifts under the impact of thunderous lead-colored rains. Look, he cries, be good, live life fully and love that's the most important part. And I reply, you didn't do any of these things, Daddy, so how can I? And together we riff a spat, my father's gravel tongue warring with my own baby's breath, both wallowing like fats waller in a homegrown cigarette-drunk coffin moan, hound dog howling muddy water song, each whole note blooming like a rose each whole note rest, the teeth of the unexpected. <laughs> I am short, sure, aren't I? Careful getting that speaker in front of Okay. This next poem is in my chat book, Luella McKernan's Greatest Hits. <laughs> It was a, it's a funny title, but really, I'm glad to be published. They can, they can name it anything they want to. <laughs> um, this is a poem about poetry, and it's more about 
what poetry does and where it comes from. And again, the title is part of the first line, so I'll read them together. Poetry, nest in the tree whose absence grows on you, lies in the fruit of a dream you peel the skin from, shines in a sentence parsed by sunlight, disappears in the still water of speech where images bob like apples. It stares up at you from the eye of a period trapped in the cul-de-sac of the present where lead vanishes from the pencil cradled in the halfway house of your hand that leads to your wrist, that rises to your elbow, that climbs crossing the shoulders white alps down into the valley of bone where your heart and lungs housing all those hollow rooms resound with poetry's indrawn breath, the pump that pushes out blood. And this is a more recent poem. It was just published in Appalachian Journal. And it's based on the fact that my favorite fruit is a peach. The real thing. You pull this fruit from a peach of a tree, the sunset among its leaves. In your hands, its soft curves turn until they become a second skin. You hold it cheek to your cheek, fuzzy down, lit by your breath. You bite down with a knife, its steel teeth. What had been hidden till then stares you straight in the eye. A wide gold red-rimmed smile glances off the edge of each slice. Again and again you cut it thin. You eat its light flesh, taking it in, relishing each bite, charged and ripe with all the past that is present perfect. You swallow what belongs to you. Juice rejoices on your hands, drips down your chin. You lift what's left to your ear, a ruddy pit. It's simple as death, this grave silence. Locked inside is a whole new tree. Thank you, Llewellyn. Uh, I don't think I said this earlier. Most of you know who I am, but my name is Kat Pleska. I'm the incoming president for West Virginia Writers Incorporated. And during my tenure, I'm going to do everything in my power to support the literary arts and in this throughout this state, whatever I can do. And this evening, we have heard five really wonderful literary artists, Jeff Fuller, Laura Bentley, Llewellyn McKernan, Eddie Pendarvis, and Wilma Acre. Please give them a hand. And thank you all for coming here, for reading, and I appreciate it a great deal coming to this. Thanks go again to Kat Pleska for not only hosting this event, but also organizing it. And thanks as well to Taylor Books for inviting us to present this reading in their store on Capitol Street in Charleston. They're an excellent bookstore. Make a mean cup of joe to boot. You can find a link to their website at our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. We also have links there to not only Seeking the Swan and where you can purchase that, but also to books and materials by the authors who read during this podcast. 
If you enjoyed their work, please be a patron of that work by purchasing some of it. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Fowl. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose music can be found through popswalker.com and cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded and or assembled atop a hill in Mercer County.